Every day, we rise, challenging ourselves to work for what we believe in. At U.S. Border Patrol, protecting our borders is more than a job. It's a calling. Agents answer the call, working together to keep our country and communities safe. If you are ready for a new mission, join U.S. Border Patrol and go beyond. Learn more at cbp.gov careers. Is the White House the next step in Julian Castro's unlikely journey? He's about to make his decision 2020. This is the National Podcast of Texas, a production of Texas Monthly, the national magazine. Welcome to the National Podcast of Texas, brought to you this week by Frost Bank and the Opt for Optimism Initiative. I'm Andy Langer. Saturday in Austin, the Texas Book Festival featured a lively conversation with Julian Castro, the keynote speaker at the 2012 Democratic National Convention, the former mayor of San Antonio, and the Obama administration's secretary of housing and urban development. His new memoir, An Unlikely Journey, Waking Up from the American Dream, was released earlier this month which made him a timely get for the festival's biggest stage. But the timing also suggests it's part of the windup for what many see as an inevitable presidential bid. Castro has spoken multiple times of late in New Hampshire and Iowa and stumped for candidates in Nevada, Florida, and Arizona ahead of the 2018 midterms. He's promising to decide whether or not to officially declare his candidacy right after the November 6th election. The book, which features a prologue written just after a border visit during the heart of the recent child detention situation, hinges heavily on immigration's role in his family's history and details the early high-profile political wins and losses of not just his own career, but also his brother, Joaquin Castro, who served in the United States House of Representatives for Texas's 20th congressional district since 2013. Just after the discussion at the book festival, Castro visited the Texas Monthly office to record this edition of our show. The news about the synagogue shooting in Pittsburgh was still developing, but we discussed our general state of division, his take on Texas's odds at turning blue, Beto, and ultimately whether he'll have the stomach it takes to go toe-to-toe with Donald Trump. This is Julian Castro. Just a little while ago, you were in the house chambers sitting at the desk of the speaker of the house and i believe you called them the most incompetent corrupt state government maybe in the country i said that i believe that texas has um one of the most incompetent and uh and i believe probably corrupt state governments uh because uh, what you have is just years and years of lack of accountability and total one-party control, which has just decayed the state government. And whether it's been contracting scandals, cronyism, the uh, scandals related to the attorney general or the agriculture commissioner, this election scandal just recently where there's vote flipping going on with these electronic machines, there's just complete lack of accountability. and. What I also said was that the worst day for these folks is going to be the day that leadership changes hands and new leadership has control over the auditing function of the state government because you, you don't know what you're going to find, but I'm sure it's going to be substan- substantive. And um, yeah, I just I think that uh, 
that we've had the state government in the hands of folks who, many of whom don't believe in government and uh, have not managed it well. You're confident that eventually that day is coming where Texas at least leans blue enough to flip a lot of these seats blue. That, that is that a demographic inevitability? I wouldn't say that anything is inevitable, but I do think that the demographic changes that Texas is undergoing uh, are helping to move it in the direction of being more competitive, at least a purple state. But on top of that, you know, we always hear about the impact of the Hispanic community, for instance, and you also have the growth of the Asian American community. Uh, you have people moving here from outside of Texas into the suburbs of DFW, Houston, San Antonio, Austin. You also have a lot of folks who are, who are native Texans living in those suburbs and we saw this in 2016, I think we're going to see it in 2018, who are moving over because they've had enough of the Trump administration. And so they're at least moving to the independent column and perhaps voting in greater numbers Democratic. And, you know, so on top of the demographic change, you have this sliding over of people who believe that the Republican Party has left them, and many of whom, frankly, are disgusted by what they see as a lack of moral leadership in Trump and, uh, and ineffective governance. So all of that adds up to, I believe, light at the end of the tunnel for Democrats in Texas. In the very beginning of your book, which is very much an immigration story, a story that without immigration wouldn't exist, you say upon going to the border recently that this was a policy designed to inflict cruelty on innocent children. And it, it appears that way. Yeah, I consider this uh, so-called family separation policy of the Trump administration to be state-sponsored child abuse. In my book, I talk about uh, my relationship with my grandmother who came from Mexico when she was seven years old along with her younger sister. And they came over because they were brought by relatives who lived in San Antonio. Uh, she left her mother as her mother was dying. But I remember her in her 70s crying uh, because she never got to see her mom, you know, right before she passed away. And how much that traumatized her. I can only imagine for these young people, these kids, um, who are going to have memories of being separated from their parents, some of whom may never we find out now, be reunited with their natural parents, it amounts to lifelong trauma. And that's child abuse, basically. Whether it's this or the caravan, is it nationalism or fear of brown people? What's driving that sentiment? Well, I think that uh, you have a president that's absolutely dead set on exploiting some anxieties about a potential changing demographics in America for his political gain. And so what they're doing is they're trying to use this issue of folks coming from the southern border uh, to essentially distract from all the other things they're doing, like tax cuts for billionaires and big corporations, and the fact that three million people have lost health insurance during the Trump administration because they've been messing around with the insurance market, undermining the Affordable Care Act, the fact that 
you know, we have folks out there that are having to work two or three jobs. Uh, they won't raise the minimum wage. Uh, so Trump is exploiting anxieties deftly. And meanwhile, you know, the Republicans in Congress are getting away with tilting the scales more and more for the wealthy uh, instead of folks who are hardworking that are just trying to provide for their families. And it's an effective distraction. No, absolutely. You know, I, I mean, it's, you know, I would say clever, but in some ways it's obvious, right? I mean, but yes, too often it has been effective. And, you know, I've told people that one of the things, though, that gives me hope is that uh, when I've gone down to the border, for instance, uh, and to these protests of this family separation policy, it gives me hope that I see people that don't look like me that are also there protesting because people have come together from different backgrounds based on shared values. Uh, and we need more leaders in this country at every level that are trying to unite us around our values, regardless of where people live or the color of their skin or how much money their folks have or don't have. And what you're going up against, though, is a president that is dead set on exploiting those differences, and we can't let him do that. And almost immediately after any of these situations, there's another one right behind it. So while we were thinking about Saudi Arabia, then it's the bombs. When we're thinking about the bombs, now it's the synagogue. And in that cycle, it's easy to forget the last thing or to not address the core issue of whatever the last thing was. That's the world we're living in. And you're definitely right about that. Uh, the, the news moves faster than ever. Uh, I think people's attention span is shorter, perhaps, than it ever has been. And also, you have a president that is fanning the flames of division. Now, I, I would not hold him directly responsible for the person that mailed those bombs or that, that uh, uh, committed the shooting at the synagogue. But I do think that he is responsible responsible for inciting that kind of violence, that he has been tremendously, terribly irresponsible with his words, his rhetoric, uh, his targeting of certain groups and people and the press, and that that has unleashed a hate, emboldened a level of hatred and bigotry that we haven't seen in a long time. And it's forced people like you into a role as resistance, right? I mean, that's where we're now, there are definable sides, more so than just Democrat or Republican. Yeah, you know, I, uh, it, it's forced everybody who sees that, hey, this is not the right path for this country. You know, we're on a very dark path here with a leader who seems just to care about whether he wins or loses, and that's it. And so people of good conscience, including people who have called themselves Republican and have voted that way, and a lot of them have expressed alarm and, yeah, are, are using their voice, you know, maybe doing it in more in starker and clearer terms, um, sometimes more strident terms than they have before because you see the, uh, the gravity of the problem if we keep going this direction. You learned about resistance and protest from your mother. Uh, she was an activist. 
What did you learn that then translates into politics from her activism? Because she was working outside the system mostly. Yeah, you know, I guess what I learned is that um, sometimes even when you don't win, that you can make progress. My mother ran for city council when she was 23 years old with this slate called the Committee for Body Betterment uh, in San Antonio. There were no single member districts yet. Uh, you had to run citywide and her slate of four people, nobody won. But on election night, when a local reporter asked her about the loss, she said, oh, we'll be back. And because of the activism of her generation, of people of different backgrounds and attacking it different ways, we got single member districts in San Antonio. The Voting Rights Act in 1975 was extended to Hispanics. The climate changed and there was more tolerance and appreciation for difference. And so 30 years later, in 2001, there I was at 26 years old, becoming the youngest elected city councilman you know, in the modern era in San Antonio. And that wasn't an accident, that was in part because of the activism of that generation. So I learned that sometimes your victory uh, may be deferred, but you're still on that march to victory. You also say in the book that it's not just an immigration story, it's an education story. That if not for education and the way each generation of your family went to the next level, this would be a very different story. No doubt. And in that sense, it's the classic American story, American dream story. My grandmother, uh, who had come over from Mexico as a child, was pulled out of elementary school, never got a formal education, and worked as a maid, a cook, and a babysitter. My mother was the first to graduate from high school and then go on to college. And she went to 16 straight years of Catholic school, including, including the university. So, <laughs> uh, But then Joaquin and I were able to go on to college and then go on to law school and become professionals and then jump into public service. And so there's no way that that would have been possible except for we got a good education. And, you know, the way that I think about it is that um, by the standard measure of the American dream, my grandmother didn't achieve it. She didn't ha own a house. She didn't own a car. She didn't even have a bank account. But you know, she had the happiness and fulfillment of raising a daughter that did go to college and then seeing uh, by the time she passed away her grandson's at Stanford University and literally within two weeks of her passing, knowing that I had gotten into Harvard Law School. And so in that sense, she achieved a dream of hers to kind of hand off success to the next generation. But San Antonio is still a place with great wealth inequality. A lot of money at the top, nothing at the bottom. And you didn't come from that money had those opportunities, what did you do differently? Why did it work for you and your brother? I think it started with uh, a mother that was absolutely determined that we would get a great education. And I, in the book, I uh, talk about an episode when we went to orientation at a middle school we were supposed to attend. And one of the teachers or administrators that was presenting that day to all of the students and their parents said that the chances were that 
maybe up to half of us wouldn't be there when it came time to graduate from the eighth grade. And my mother pulled us out of that school and transferred us to another one right away. And she later told us that she wouldn't put her sons anywhere where they didn't believe that we could even finish the eighth grade. So it started with a mom that was absolutely determined to make sure that we succeeded. She also was very good about instilling in us a pride in doing well in school and, you know, doing what we should do to get ahead. And that helped a lot. You know, on top of that, also, I write about, uh, you know, a couple of teachers that made a difference. And the, we went to the public schools of San Antonio. And along the way, there were teachers that, that really made an impression on me and also were like shepherds helping us get through a passage and, and get on our way to success. Your mother was this activist for Chicano rights. When you step into politics and the New York Times does an early profile of you, they call you the post-Hispanic Hispanic politician. What's that mean to you? I mean, your guess is as good as mine, you know? I don't know. What kind I, of stuff? You know, I think what they were trying to say, I would agree with it to this extent that... Um, for my brother and for me, you know, we see the first rule of public service as that you have to serve everybody that you represent. You know, we recognize that in our career, our careers, that um, first of all, very few Latinos have gotten to the positions that Joaquin and I have gotten to. And so we feel very blessed, very fortunate to be able to have done those things. And also we do feel a responsibility um, you know, as kind of role models to uh, do a good job and um, we're aware of the impact that that has on the Latino community. Yet at the same time, you know, we understand that you have to govern for everybody. And, you know, maybe that's what that was referring to. When Obama called, A, he said, I know you'd like to be governor of Texas, but it's not time. Or he didn't think it was time. Uh, you were sure of that at the time, too, right? Oh, yeah. In 2014, no. I knew that I wasn't going to run and, and that, uh, that I didn't think the state was ready in 2014. Did you have I – mean, you backed off initially, but you took a, a week, a couple days to give him that call back. Oh, after he called, back, called yeah. about HUD. Yeah, yeah. A few days, yeah. Yeah, I had to talk to my wife, of course. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I would not say yes without consulting Erica, sure. <laughs> well, I, I'm going to get there later, but this whole I got to talk to my wife thing. A guy like you, who's had politics, I mean, you, what, you wrote it on some kind of elementary school questionnaire. Your wife knows that you're going to be a politician. Do you have to ask her to run for president? <laughs> you I always mean, have to ask your wife. I to, guess, uh, but, yeah, I, but, I think, but your uh, wife knows what the deal is, I would imagine. <laughs> well, she knew that I wanted to go into politics in San Antonio when we met. I write about that, you which do, is a yeah. funny you know, yeah. first date that we had. But, um, but yeah, I mean, the thing is that whether it was taking the job as secretary of HUD or today thinking about running for president, that involves a, a, a pretty significant change of lifestyle for not just it would for me, but also for my wife and for my children. And uh, that has to be something, something that all of us 
uh, believe in and agree with. And, you know, the, the great thing, in, and I write about this in the book, is that Erica has always been wonderfully supportive uh, of me. Let's talk Beto for a minute. First, you said something interesting at this Texas Book Festival thing that I don't know that I knew. Did your brother come to some kind of arrangement with Beto? They both wanted this. Well, no, I wouldn't say it was an arrangement. It was just a they a had conversation. a conversation, and it was clear that Bethel really wanted to run for this seat. And uh, you know, obviously, my brother uh, believes that he's a great candidate, and Joaquin is doing important work on the House Intelligence Committee and Foreign Affairs, and he wasn't in a rush to run for anything. And so, you know, it was clear that this was something that Bethel really wanted to do and had a vision for, and. You know, when we're helping him, and I think that he has a decent shot of winning. Uh, I, you know, I, I see this race as one of those races where, even though admittedly the polls don't show it right now, there are just sometimes some races where the dam breaks, and you can't see it before. But I, I truly believe that there's a chance that that's going to happen, and that he gets something like 52 percent of the vote uh, on election night. Obviously, and now I'm going to sound like a columnist or something. Right. I had a political column. I could be wrong. Um, however, I, I just I have a feeling that 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 may well happen. And if I'm right, then uh, please play this after the day after the election. <laughs> Put the logistics aside of him visiting every county. The the way the campaign is run. Yeah. What's different about him? And you know how the sausage is made, and you know what you're seeing on stage versus off, etc. How is he a different and maybe generational politician? Yeah, well, I mean, I think he speaks to this uh, generation. If you look at how he's uh, run the campaign, um, not taking PAC money, uh, not hiring a whole bunch of consultants, uh, I mean, FaceTiming, uh, Facebook living a lot of his campaign and being basically direct to camera. And it's not all glossy, but it's authentic. And then on top of that, just his the way that he's approached it, which is sort of this um, happy warrior, right? He's been very positive. And I think that that's resonated in a time when uh, Trump and others have been so negative and so divisive uh, that he's been trying to speak in positive ter- tones and also to unite people. He's spoken a lot about whether you're a Republican or you're Democrat or independent or you're a non-voter, you're welcome here at our rallies. That stands in stark contrast to these Trump rallies that you see where, you know, basically there's an enemy number one, you know, and that's anybody that's not in this room or anybody that doesn't agree with us. Uh, So I do think that he's captured the zeitgeist and uh, I, I think that he can win on November 6th. It may be easier, and I'm no political pundit, But it may be easier here against Ted Cruz, a unpopular, even within his own party, politician, to stay positive and to be the uniter and, and deliver that message. It's going to be very different against Donald Trump. Well, and different in a Democratic primary, right? Uh, right. Before then, yeah, and against Donald Trump. Do you have the stomach for that? Oh, if I run, Because that's going to yeah. be nasty. Oh, I, if I have I run, yeah, sure I do. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Um, maybe a couple of things there. Number one, I've said that I don't believe that we're going to beat Donald Trump by trying to be Donald Trump. Yeah, if you look at who wins these races as Democrats, 
it's usually uh, a leader from a new generation who paints a positive, strong vision for the future, whether that was Kennedy's New Frontier, Carter, who represented a break from scandal in the Watergate era, uh, Clinton, uh, who was basically the baby boomer generation coming into its own, and of course, Barack Obama, uh, who gave that wonderful speech at the 2004 convention about no red states or blue states, but the United States. And during a time of a lot of division around the Iraq war, especially, and the tremendous failure of Katrina represented hope that we could unite as a country. And so, and incidentally, Kennedy was 43 when he took office, you know, Carter was 50 or 51, Clinton was 46 and Obama was 46, 47. So, you know, there's, there's a sweet spot. Yeah, and and I think that what you're going to have is somebody from this group that's under 55, probably that emerges as a Democratic nominee. Because when I go out there, I mean, I hear very clearly that people want a new generation of leadership, a new face, whether I run or not. Um, but you have to be able to stand up to Donald Trump and to call him out. I don't think you want to be Donald Trump because you're not going to beat Donald Trump by trying to outgutter him. Um, people, as Beto's campaign has shown, people are looking for for inspiration and positivity. Um, it can't be a naive positivity, but I do think people want something positive. So a message with depth, but a willingness to fight directly against him. Yeah. Is going to have yeah. to be the I mean, equation. I think this race, yeah. you know, that Beto's engaged in now at, at the end with... Um, it's Ted turning Cruz. that way, yeah. That's right. I mean, I think they recognized that, yes, you need to be very positive and, you know, and uh, visionary, but also you do have to point out the contrasts. What I'm glad to see and what they've avoided is you don't want to get into the gutter of just name-calling and everything else that Trump does because then people just throw up their hands. And um, what we need is for people not to throw up their hands but to say, oh, you know what, I like him or I like her. I, I believe that they have a strong vision for the country and that I'm part of it. And if you can get that against Donald Trump, yeah, I think he won because a lot of people, you know, putting aside what I believe, a lot right. of people believe that he was the lesser of two evils. But a lot of people are afraid they're going to have to again choose the lesser of two evils. Well, he's going to do everything that he can and that machine will to turn the Democratic nominee into that. Um, and that's why it depends on who we select, right? That you need somebody that can rise above that and that people can believe in. And I think that we do have a talented bench of folks that could fit that bill. Even the subtitle of this book suggests the time we're in. It's waking up from the American dream. That's purposeful. Absolutely. Yeah. I say from the very beginning of the book and also throughout it and toward the end that You know, my family basically, especially my mother and then my brother and me, right? We realize that you have to, you have to not just work hard yourself, but work to improve the community or the country so that you can expand opportunity and be able to achieve your American dream and so that others can too. And it's exciting to see so many young people today exercising their constitutional rights of 
protest, you know, assembly, speech, the press, um, to push back against leadership in Washington, D.C. that is so hell-bent on taking us backward. The March for Our Lives folks are a good example of, of people, young people doing this. The Dreamers, who have been very active, are another good example. Um, and they have woken up, essentially, and realized that they need to actually fight to be able to preserve the American dream, that it's not guaranteed. Has that resistance been consistent enough and sustained enough and prolonged enough? Well, I mean, I think... Are we seeing any result of that? Yeah, I think so. I mean, I think that the health care legislation, the overturning of the ACA failed, in essence, because of the activism uh, around that issue. And, of course, Senator McCain famously cast that vote. But the, you know, the sort of the foundation for all of that and how people voted was set by the record number of calls that were put into congressional and senatorial offices. The March for Our Lives um, student activists, even though, you know, if we start going state by state or certainly at the federal level, you may not say, hey, well, you know, what legislation has that resulted in yet? It is night and day when you compare the courage that a lot of politicians are showing taking on the NRA in 2018 versus five years ago. Andrew Gillum in Florida is a perfect example of that. I mean, here's a guy who is probably going to become the governor of Florida. Florida that's often referred to as the gunshine state, where they have that crazy stand your ground law, who took on the NRA when he was mayor of Tallahassee. He won a suit that they filed against him when the city council passed some uh, legislation regulating uh, the carrying of guns in parks. He defeated that. Uh, but also has unabashedly run as a critic of the NRA. And on the debate stage just the other day against his congressional opponent uh, or his gubernatorial opponent, Congressman DeSantis, said, you know, of course they want this guy. The NRA wants this guy. They want the man that they bought. It's just, I, I think that when historians start to write about the turning over of that of that issue one day when we do get good legislation again, you know, if we do, that it'll be that first the courage of the politicians around it changed. And once folks aren't afraid of the NRA anymore, then they change. They help change the perceptions among the electorate. And I think that's what's beginning to happen. I mean, fear is fear of losing your job as a politician at whatever level. That's one of the motivations for going along with whatever it is whatever today's controversy is. At what point, though, does serving those constituents conflict with just doing the right thing? That seems to be where we're at. Yeah, no. Is that a solvable puzzle? You know, I think that... um, I I believe that it is... um, I mean, first of all, it starts off with a system where the politicians shouldn't feel that they're guaranteed, their election is ever guaranteed, right? Because if they feel that way, they're comfortable. They know that they can go one comfortable path all the time. Um, But, you know, I think it also starts with electing people of good conscience that are going to stick to their principles. And that doesn't mean that they're never going to compromise. It also means that 
we need to overturn Citizens United, you know, get big money out of politics as much as possible because people do have oversized influence, um, continue to better regulate lobbying, make Congress subject to the Freedom of Information Act so there's more sunlight in the whole process and people can track what's going on. All of those things, if we did them, if we accomplished them, I think would result in more courage being shown by elected officials, really on both sides of the aisle on different issues. Is the hardest part of politics asking for money? Uh, yeah, I mean, I guess it's probably level. like the one of the least enjoyable parts. I mean, you know, there's there every now and then you come across a politician that uh, that loves it, but they're probably crazy. Right. <laughs> so, but should you make the decision to run, you have to do a lot of that. Yeah, no, and that's and something I'm, you got to factor in, right? No doubt, no doubt. Yeah, a how lot much of, of the equation and, is that in the factoring in? Oh, it's some, but I mean, just as much as anything else, right? I mean, I think the the biggest thing for me is I know that I'm going to be away uh, from my family a lot, and I have a child, a girl that is nine and a son that is three, and that's what weighs on my mind the most heavily. That during these precious years of their lives, uh, that I would be gone a lot. The flip side of that is they get to be part of this very small club, if it were to all work out, who grow up in the White House. Which I I think would be an amazing experience. And one of the reasons that I said yes to taking the job at HUD is because I believed that for my daughter, uh, Karina, who at that time was five, that it would be a great experience that she would get to see things that she just otherwise wouldn't get to there in Washington, D.C., and meet people from around the country and around the world and to learn. And she did have a great experience. Sometimes she still misses it. Um, And, you know, thinking about the future, I do think, you know, along the lines that you said, I think of it in some of the same ways. I'm curious, and we'll probably end here. The easiest play for them to come at you early and hard is going to be what? You know, I wouldn't put it past folks to throw everything, but probably, you know, that um, things like my last name and, I mean, look what they said about Obama, right? They said that uh, basically that Donald Trump himself peddled this theory that Obama was not born in the country. And so as you think about... uh, a Latino or Mexican-American especially, contemplating running for president, I can only imagine the field day that uh, that some folks uh, would have with that. But my, my belief and what gives me hope is that there are more people out there that, um, that can look past the color of your skin or your last name, uh, no matter what their background is, and can judge you on your ideas and what you would do for the country. So yeah, I mean, they're gonna try everything, um, but that's part of politics. And in terms of the inspiration, at the end of the book, the, I'm, I'm gonna ruin the last line for people. <laughs> <laughs> it's embrace your own unlikely journey. That's, that means what? It means that in this country, I feel, I, think we still have the ability for folks who start off 
from humble beginnings to reach great heights. And so no matter who you are, and I mean this especially for young people, my hope is that a lot of high school students and college students and stuff will read this, that uh, to believe in yourself no matter what, where you are in life. Because at, it, at base, at the foundation, Joaquin and I have succeeded because we believed in ourselves. And we surrounded ourselves with people who believed in us. And that's what I hope folks will do. And each generation seems to be a little more hopeful. Yeah, I think so. I think this youngest generation in its own way, um, you know, one of the good things is they seem to believe less in institutions or parties and more in the power of people, of ideas, uh, and getting past old divisions. And that is beautiful to see. All right. Thank you. Thank you. Julian Castro's new memoir, An Unlikely Journey, Waking Up from the American Dream, is available wherever you buy books. Every year in Austin, the Texas Book Festival invites nearly 300 authors to its free and open to the public two-day event. And through their Reading Rockstars program, more than 93,000 books have been given to Title I elementary students across the state. The nonprofit takes donations year-round at texasbookfestival.org. This week's show was brought to you by Frost Bank and the Opt for Optimism initiative. Optimism can be a powerful tool in life's turning points. In response to a recent post from the Texas Optimism Project, Courtney Cobb shared her own story of resilience. After relocating to Austin to work at a craft brewery, she came to terms with her own alcohol addiction and was moved by the support from her new community. In the most recent conversation on optimism, Courtney takes a deep dive into Hey Cupcake founder Wes Hurt's story of addiction and how his recovery inspired At Clean Cause, which aims to provide sustainable funding for others in recovery. Visit TexasMonthly.com and the Texas Optimism Project page to learn more. Meanwhile, we're always available as well at TexasMonthly.com, where you can find all the information you need about this weekend's Texas Monthly Barbecue Fest. You can also listen to episodes of Underdog, Beto vs. Cruz, our critically acclaimed Senate race podcast. And if you like what you heard here, consider subscribing to the National Podcast of Texas on Apple, Google, SoundCloud, or Spreaker, sharing it on social media, or maybe even leaving a recommendation on one of those services. I'm Andy Langer. This week's show was recorded and readied by Sean Cronin and was produced by Brian Standifer. Thanks for being here, and thanks in advance for coming back next week. You've been listening to the National Podcast of Texas, a production of Texas Monthly, the national magazine.